That was great, man. Praise the Lord. Well, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to <coughs> Proverbs chapter 5. And you'll remember that last week we started Proverbs chapter 5 and we looked at uh, the teachings on, on false religion and false teachings and false prophets and false churches found in chapter uh, 2 in the book of Proverbs, but it's also found in chapter 5 where we're at, but we're going to run into it again in chapter 7. And we saw last week how that uh, in the Bible, in the book of Proverbs anyhow, uh, that false religion and false churches are all portrayed as a strange woman. And uh, the illustration of a strange woman, we talked about going back, we studied it in chapter 2 in a little more detail. We found out that this strange woman has a husband. And that husband is all the science and all the false philosophy of life, and he's called the evil man. It's typified back in the book of Kings with Ahab and Jezebel. And those are the great two studies that you want to take it through. And uh, we saw how that false religion uh, will seduce you as much as this strange woman is likened to a harlot that seduces uh, to men and women. And that she will take hold of your life uh, through strongholds. We've talked about those before. And uh, in everything in your life, she'll take control of and in and, and, and an final will destroy you and, as the Bible says, send you to, send you to hell. Yet inspirationally, we also know that it's a picture of someone or something that uh, takes place in our own lives today. Uh, it can be a guy, it can be a gal, it can be golf, it can be baseball, it can be anything. Something that takes the place of God uh, in your life and something that you totally give your heart over to uh, other than the Lord. Uh, there's a great principle that I teach that I've learned through life. And uh, I guess I should say I, I try to teach it. And, and that is that you, you, you can't build two intimate relationships at the same time. You find a lot of times where people will come into church, you know, and, and they'll start to grow and they'll start to get involved and they'll start to uh, get into the Bible. And, uh, and, and suddenly, you know, their old boyfriend pops up or, or, or something and they, they try to uh, build a relationship with God uh, while they're trying to build a relationship with, with that person. And, and, and most of the time, many times, it, it, that simply will not work. Uh, it's almost impossible because they will get all of your time and the time that you spent with God in your Bible uh, as an early Christian, uh, if, if you ever really did, will be gone and God, who is a jealous God, will always get left out in the cold. And the reason for it is real simple. You know, a, a young Christian, a baby Christian, a new Christian, or even a weak Christian, they can't come to the place where they really understand and put it all together about the roots of a relationship. So you want to uh, you, you want to realize that they haven't established yet a a structure in their life. They haven't established yet a an unbreakable bond with the Lord, a, a prince priority system. An order of discipline, we'll call it. And, and the problem you can see, uh, it, it, we see it all the time. It, 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 you, you take to that person, you see that person and in question. You see him all the time. You talk to him all the time. But the Bible says God is a spirit. We don't have that relationship with God where you can see him. We haven't got to the place yet where you've learned how uh, to, uh, you know, make him uh, your everyday companion. 
So without that strong, unbreakable bond and that walk with God, uh, God always is going to come out on the short end of the stick. It always happens that way. And will always, without a doubt, the devil will make sure of it, that we'll always uh, trade what uh, should be our first love for a bad second one. And I've seen it all my life. Now, it goes without saying today, and I'm sure everybody who have any inkling of anything going on in the world today, uh, you would understand that New Testament Christianity has went the way of the nation of Israel. A couple of Thursday nights ago, we looked at the nation of Israel. And to me, it's always been an amazing thing, the parallels between the nation of Israel and the church. They got into the same problems the same way. They may have lived 4,000 years apart. One may be dealing with a physical kingdom, the other with a spiritual kingdom, but the problems were always the same. And it goes without saying, and we, we lose sight of this sometime, we think that way back in the Bible times that their problems were different than ours. They're not. Human nature has been a constant down through history. And human nature will always be human nature. And the problems that they had are the same problems that we have. And the problems that Israel struggled with as a nation of God's people will be the same problems we struggle with as God's people in the New Testament. And you know what it was? putting something in your life that you love more than God. And that's always been the problem. Israel, 1000 B.C., the height of their, of their time under Solomon's reign. And yet when you study that, we find that it was the strange woman, the women that he put in his life, that from the other nations, that he was told not to have anything to do with. Those strange women took his love from God. The Bible says in 1 Kings eleven four that his wives turned his heart away from God and from the things uh, of God and went after other gods. And for the church, it starts very early the same way. We go through church history and we know that uh, the book of Revelation very uh, clearly lays out the aspect of church history. We know that the church period of church history, the first one is the church at Ephesus, all the way back to about 200 A.D. It was a good church. A church that when you read about it in the Bible, it tried the spirits. It didn't put up with falsehoods. It didn't put up with people who lied about who they were spiritually. It was a good church. But we see the same problem with them that we saw with the nation of Israel. Revelation chapter 2, 4. God says to that church, Nevertheless, I have someone against thee. Why? Because thou hast left thy first love. The nation of Israel under Solomon lost their first love. It was the Lord thy God. And churches today and Christians today will always trade the first love of their life for something that is a second that is never a very good thing in their life. And in both cases, Israel and the church, you can go back uh, into their time period in history and exactly see when they did what they did when they left God. And I want to tell you something. You can go back in your life and I can go back in my life and you sit down with somebody that, that is a Christian that's gotten far from God. You can pinpoint in your own life the exact point when you left God for something else. It's just that easy. Now in Proverbs chapter 5, it's a great study on departing from the love of your life to a love that will only bring strife. It's a, it's a great study on it. Another principle I always, I always teach And you've heard me say it many, many times. And you don't have to look around very far in life to see this is true. I always tell you that if it starts wrong, it's usually going to end wrong. And that is so true uh, in everything in our lives. When, When we start wrong, we're going to wind up 
the whole thing is going to wind up being wrong. And uh, we're going to pick it up today in chapter 5 of the book of Proverbs uh, in verses 15, and we'll read down through 19. Now, this passage is, to me, is one of the most personal passages in the Bible. I hope after I'm done today that you'll see why it is. To me, it's on the same level as the book of Song of Solomon as its personal application to me. But in verses 15 through 19, he begins to show us what our attitude should be with God uh, and, and, and loving Him completely and, and, and to be able to keep Him uh, forever as our first love of our life. Now, let me read it here in verse 15. It says this, Drink waters out of thine own cistern and running waters out of thine own well. Let thy fountains be dispersed abroad and the rivers of waters in the streets. Let them be only thine own and not strangers with thee. Let thy fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. Let her be as the loving hind and pleasant roe. Let her breast satisfy thee at all times and be thou ravished always with her love. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus and we ask you today to to give us the Word of God that you have for us. We thank you for those who have come out today. And Lord, this is just the start of a long day for us as we go out and take the Word of God to other people. And Lord, to show them that uh, God loves them and cares for them. And we show them, Lord, what somebody else has shown us. So help us learn today. Help us learn that the greatest thing in our lives is to love you with all of our heart and with all of our mind and all of our soul and sometimes, Lord, as the great verse says, it takes all of our strength. And we'll be careful to give you the honor and the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name, for sake we ask it, amen. Now, the Bible says here in verse 15, Drink water out of thine own cistern, and running waters out of thine own well. Now, there's three great principles found in this verse as we begin to start to look at it. We're going to kind of take it apart verse by verse. But there's three great principles here for anybody who wants that relationship with God that we've been talking about so far, and then you want to maintain it that God and the Word of God will always be your first love and never get traded away for the something the strange woman has or the evil man has or, or anything in your life. Now let's examine this. Look at verse 15. It says, Drink waters out of thine own well. Now the first concept is the concept of a well of water in your life. That will always be a picture of your personal relationship and your personal development with the Word of God in your life. Having a shallow well in your life will produce shallow Christians. Having a deep well in your life that goes down with all the water, a picture of the Word of God in the Bible, will always produce a deep Christian. John chapter 4. All through the Bible, you can't miss it. John chapter 4, we have the story of the woman uh, at the well. And we all know that that great picture is a picture of a woman uh, who needs the salvation that God has for her. And the Bible says that uh, it's, it's, it's Jacob's well. And yet when you take that and you look at the fact that here's an Old Testament story that portrays the New Testament salvation, we know that the Bible says salvation is of the Jews. So the well that she goes to, that this water comes to give her the eternal life that she's looking for through Christ, is Jacob's well because the Bible says salvation is of the Jews. And it's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture. It's a picture of our salvation. You can go back into Genesis chapter 29 
And there's a parallel story back there that goes right along with John chapter 4. For there again we find a story about Jacob's well. And it's the same exact well in John chapter 4. A couple of hundreds of years have passed between the two. But it's the exact same well that we read about back in Genesis chapter 29, Jacob's well. The same well. But the Bible says a great stone was upon that well. And the Bible says that in the fields around them were three flocks of sheep that needed water. And they had to remove the rock before they could water those those sheep. When I look at things like that, and I know that John chapter 4 is Jacob's well. Back in Genesis chapter 29, it's the same well. And I know that water in the Bible is a type of the Word of God. And the deeper the well, uh, the, the deeper uh, the, your relationship in the Word of God. And I understand that, that that well in the Bible is something that the water of life that we got the day we got saved. And then I look back there and I see this well with a great stone on it. And the sheep can't get the water. But when they removed the stone, they was able to take the water and feed the three different flocks of sheep. You know what that's a picture of? Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And from those three boys, all the races come today. Just like there was three three, uh, groups of sheep that needed the water. They represent mankind through the sons of Noah. And we needed the water. But the water was, couldn't get to us because it was, it was covered with a great stone. But in, Jesus died on the cross and they rolled that stone away in the resurrection. Everybody from Noah got the water that we needed. It always marveled that, that when you study that story in Genesis 29, there's a great store, a stone uh, on the top of that well, a great rock. But when you go to John chapter 4, there's another great stone, another great rock sitting on the same well, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's water in the Bible. That's water in the Bible. Proverbs 25, 25 says, As cold water to a thirsty soul, so was the good news from a far country. That's the gospel. The gospel means good news. Now that's a great picture of water in the well of life, in the word of God, that is God's water given to us and our thirsty souls to drink of. You know, water's an incredible substance. Did you ever look in water? It has no no taste. It has no color, unless you get it out of the faucet in Kansas City. (laughs) But it has no no clay. It's clear. It, it, It has no taste. It has no smell. It has no color. There's things out there that you can drink, coffee, pop, tea, all the things that you drink that are liquid, but nothing will satisfy your thirst like water. Because there's things in this life, folks, that you can try. There's every artificial thing that you can put into your life that you think will satisfy the thirst of your soul. But I want to tell you on the authority of the Word of God today, there's only one thing that's going to satisfy your thirsty soul, and it's the water that comes from that well. It's just that simple. Oh, I love these stories. I love these stories. Now, I want to talk about here a couple of things. And the first thing I want, we've talked about here is the, the original well. God made the water available. God dug the original well. 
And at the removing of that great stone, the resurrection of Christ, the water was made available to you and me. And we got the water. God made it available in the Word of God. But the second thing I want to talk about is a cistern. A cistern is a place that you store the water that you get from the well. You see, it's not enough for you just to have it. But you've got to have a supply, a reservoir of the water of life. You've got to have it in your own soul for your salvation, but it doesn't stop there. You take it and your thirsty soul gets the cold drink of water, but it doesn't stop there. Because there's going to become some dry times in your life. There's going to become some droughts in your life. Sometimes you're going to walk through the desert or the wilderness like the children of Israel, and there's going to be no water for you to drink. You never want to wait as a Christian till you get into the dry land before you start to put some water in your cistern. Now, mostly in the Old Testament and throughout the Bible and throughout history, cisterns were dug out of rock because rock held the water. And it's the water that you get in a Christian's life, a natural reservoir, the water that you get from God's well that you draw from it and you put into your own life and you'll keep it there as a supply of everything that you need. You see, once you dig the well and God gives you the water, you have to store it up. Now, I need to say this. God made the water in the Bible, the well, and God made the water available through the resurrection, but you got to dig the well. you got to have the well in your own life. And you've got to dig that well deep. And however, however deep you decide to dig it is all the farther you're going to go in life. It's real simple. And then you have to have that reservoir. Once you dig the well, God gives you the water. Now you've got to store it up. Hey, I've seen people bless their hearts all my life. I've seen them come to church two years, three years, four years, five years, ten years. I've seen them have have no better handle on the Bible and life and the issues of life than the day they got saved. I've seen them come to churches 10, 15 years, and when after that period of time, they still didn't have any handle, better handle on the things of the Word of God. They still struggle with all the issues in life. What's the reason? What's the problem? I believe they're saved. I believe they actually drank from the well, but they never dug their own well. They never got a cistern with a supply of water that when a tough time would come. I've seen them continue to make bad choices after one bad choice after the other. I've seen them make them in their families. I've seen them make them in their relationships, in every aspect of their life. And you've got to look at it at some point and, and ask yourself, what's the point? I mean, four, five, six, seven, eight years going Sunday morning, Sunday night, Thursday night, Wednesday night, all the extra things. And when you really need it, the water to make a good a choice in life or to hold your life together or hold your family together or hold your marriage together or hold your whole world together to protect that first love, not there. It's not there. You see, God gives us the water, but we have to dig the well and store up the extra water. And the problem in most God's people's lives today, there's nothing stored up. They have no reservoir. They have nothing that they can count on. Now, the third thing. And this is all out of the first verse. The third thing, it says running water. That's, that's the thing about the Word of God in our lives. It's the most exciting book in the world. And I'll tell you, the aspect of running water in your life will ensure that your well never gets stagnant. It'll ensure that your Christian life never gets stagnant. Not your life, not anything that you do. 
Hey, I've been shaved to close to 43 years now, and, and every, every time I open that book, it's like the first time. I mean, it's more exciting to me today than it even was when I first got saved. And brother, I want to tell you, it was exciting when I first got saved. Amen. I mean, I, I, we got Ruckman's book back there on Joshua. And uh, most of you don't know who Dr. Peter S. Ruckman is. And uh, he's a guy in my life very early on that, that, uh, that really made an impact about the Bible and believe in the Bible. And uh, he's 90-some years old now, and he's still kicking and still writing books. And I, I would say, just from based on my experience, that he's probably the greatest mind on the English Bible in the world today. And he takes the Bible and lays it out. And we got the book of Joshua that he came in. We've got a number of his commentaries back there. But I, I, every time I hear there's a commentary coming out, I can't wait to get it. Now, I've been through the book of Joshua at least 100 times. You look at my Bible, I've got every, every verse outlined, every word broken down. I've got every chapter broken down. I've done my work on it. But when I got, into, got that book, got my hands on it, and that's why I always have them come to my house when they deliver it so I get the first one. I couldn't wait to rip that box open, and I didn't get through the introduction. So I found four or five things I never saw before. And it's just as exciting. That's the thing about the Bible being a living book. Now, some of you maybe come here this morning and you get a little, maybe not, but, you know, you get, you, you see everybody happy and everybody, you know, bubbly around and everybody just having a good time. And, and I know that that's not what you see in most churches. Most churches are the first church of the refrigerator. Most people look like they've been baptized in dill pickle juice. You know what I'm saying? They're not happy. They're not excited about anything. They go to church and you say, oh, what, what, I know you're a Christian. Why is that? Because you look like you're really mad about something. I mean, it is, they, they, they don't have any joy in their life. I want to tell you, when, when your life is not stagnant and that water is bubbling through the fountain of life in your life and it's moving down through your life and it's always moving, you get excited, man. You get excited. You get excited. Out from a well of bubbling fresh water to a cesspool. That's where most God's people go. It was 1971. I had just gotten my life right with God. And I went to church that night and my first introduction to Dr. Peter S. Ruckman. And he's a guy that when he preaches, he draws. Now he can preach without drawing, but he does chalk talks and they're powerful. And he's, he's one of the greatest minds uh, that you ever got with the Bible. And I would suggest any time you can read any of his books or you want to learn the Bible, that's the way to go. But I'll tell you, I was there that night and I just got right with God. And I was sitting right down the front row. And I was watching this guy up here and he was coming through there and he was talking. And he, I'll never forget, he preached on the gospel according to Exodus. And I knew nothing about the Bible. If you'd have told me for after that night, you know, Turn to the gospel in the Bible, I'd have turned to Exodus. I, I didn't know what the other was for in the New Testament. I didn't know anything. But all that night, that night I sat down there and I saw a man who loved the Bible. I saw a man who the Bible changed his life. I saw a man get up there and he'd lay that thing out and he'd start coming down through there. And I saw him take an Old Testament story about the children of Israel coming out of Egypt in Exodus chapter 12 and paralleling out to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ of you and I getting saved. He laid that thing out of them coming out of Egypt just like the day you and I came out of the world. He talked about how that they had to take a lamb, a male, and a firstling of the flock that matched up the Christ. He talked about that they took that blood and they put that blood on this side of the door, on that side of the door, and on the top of the door. And then the Bible says when the death angel came over, he said, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. 
Hey, I remember him asked the question. Why didn't why didn't he just put why didn't he just put blood all over the door? Why didn't he put blood on this side and blood on that side and blood over here? He says because that pictures Calvary's cross. One thief on this side, one thief on that side, and one at the top. He's counted with them, but he's higher than they are because he's deity. That whole church went crazy. I didn't completely understand all he said, but I went crazy. I thought it was the greatest stuff I ever heard. He came down there and showed how that Passover lamb was killed on the 14th day of the month, on a Wednesday. Same day that Christ was crucified on. He laid out every parallel. He laid out everything in there. And I'm sitting there as a young guy who just gave my life to God and want to make my life count. And my mouth is hanging open. And I'm listening to what he's saying. And I'm saying, oh, I want to know the Bible like that. I want to be able to stand and teach the Bible like that. I got to get that. I want that. That was the most exciting thing I ever saw in my life. Boy, he come down there. He come down there in Exodus chapter 12 and verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, and 5. And I'll never forget. He talked about up there and he said, now, let me show you something about your Bible. And he says, look at verse 3. And he says, every man's supposed to take a lamb. He says, now, look at verse 4. It says if the lamb uh, be too small for, uh, for, the, uh, for the, uh, the house be too small, let every man take the lamb. Then he says, verse 5, your lamb shall be without spot, without blemish. He says, I'll never forget. He took his glasses off and he turned around and he said, what kind of mind do you think behind a Bible like that? One step is a lamb. Next verse is the lamb. The next verse is your lamb. He says, you know what, folks? The first thing you need is a lamb. But not any lamb will do. You need the lamb. But he says, you know what? You can know all about the lamb. You need to make that lamb your lamb. Oh, I place, I would not place went ballistic. I'll never forget. I went home that night. I went home that night and I said, the book is real. I didn't understand anything about it. I didn't know where to find anything in it. But I knew that thing for the first time in my life. I had something that was the real deal. I've been 20 years of my life looking at everything. It was phony and fake. Trying everything that didn't work. And that night, glory to God, I found what worked. I'm telling you. I never got over it. I never got over it. I'll never get over it. Now look at verse 16. Here we go. Let thy fountains be dispersed abroad and rivers of water in the streets. Now it says, let thy fountains. You dig a well, you dig the well deep, you build a cistern, and then it turns into fountains. You know what that is? There's your children. There's your kids. There's your family that spring forth from you like water out of a fresh spring going out from your family to the streets. That unbroken chain of families ministering together. It says water dispersed abroad. Now there's the end result of you and your children and your grandchildren taking water to thirsty people. John chapter 4. There's the water that in your life and my life springs into everlasting life, gets into your family and gets into your children and into your grandchildren and it forms the unbroken chain. Good news from a far country. Now, there's two great facts and truths in life. Fact number one is that your children will disperse the water that comes from your well. Now, let me say that one more time. 
your children will disperse, good or bad, the water that comes from your well. Second fact, stagnant parents produce stagnant children. It's just that simple. Last Sunday night, we had our little pot taco deal. And uh, I'll tell you, it was a great deal. It was everything that you could ever want. I went home. I was so happy. I was so thrilled. I thought it was great. It was a, everybody organized it well. The girls did a great job. Uh, Joe and, and, uh, did a great job. Zach did a great Everybody did a great job. But I sat there last night. And we had, they had all the kids come up and talk about camp. And they were telling stories on each other. And they were laughing about things. And a lot of it was stupid stuff. And it was stuff that the average person would sit there and say, well, what's the big deal? I don't think that's funny. Let me tell you something, folks. Hidden in all of that laughter and all of that fun and all that kidding around and fooling around was the real purpose that we're here for. And we've done the last couple years. And you, mom and dad, and our youth program and our camp, it's instilling the word of God in those little lives that restart and the prayer groups and a turnaround and the camp building a lifestyle of passing out the water and you see it at work in their lives it's the most exciting thing you could ever see like i told you a couple of months ago in another great story on the well and the water pictured in the word of god of our lives back in genesis chapter 26 this time isaac going down to bethel And I told you how that Isaac did three things. The first thing he did was build an altar. And I told you in verse uh, uh, 25 that that's always a picture of us building our personal relationship with God. Then the second thing he did in verse 17, the Bible says that he pitched his tent. That's his family. He pitched his tent on the altar of his family on the altar that he built with God. Then the third thing he did, verse 18, he dug wells. He knew his family was going to have to have some water. And when you come down through there, it says wells, plural. He dung one for himself and then one for each of his kids. And they had enough well and enough water for others too. That's what we do here. We build Christian character. I was at the gym the other day and there's a guy there. And I've always always wondered and marveled at at these guys who are are quote-unquote Christian bodybuilders. And I mean, they're huge. And I would never say anything derogatory to them because they break me like a matchstick. <laughs> but I've always been amazed. I saw this guy had a, t-shirt, a sweatshirt on, a T-shirt on the other day. It says, and, and, and when you want to make something of God, when it maybe really isn't, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but when you want to make something, when you don't want to really get involved in real ministry or going out and doing this and doing that, and you want to do what you want to do, but bring God into it, you'll all, and this guy had a T-shirt that says, God is a bodybuilder. And you see, that tells me right there, a guy knows nothing about the Bible. Because the Bible says God doesn't waste any time building your body. And turning your flesh dwells no good thing. Amen. God is not a bodybuilder. God is a character builder. Amen. See? I understand it. I get it. I'm not mad. I went over and talked to the guy. I said, nice t-shirt. Can I get one? I mean, I, 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 I'm with you. I'm okay. I'm just getting you the point. I'm getting you the principle. You got to see it. That's what we do here. We build, we build Christian character. You'll never be anything with God without character of God. You build character, which in time will build strong Christian marriages, which will build strong Christian singles, which will build strong Christian in time families, that will build strong Christian churches that produce water, the springs of water from the well to the streets of Kansas City that you and your family have dug for yourself, for your children, 
and then for others. Remember Ezekiel chapter 47, a couple of months ago, I preached that message about the water coming out of the sanctuary, about the picture of the Spirit of God and the Word of God, and you go into it to your ankles, to your knees, to your loins, and then to the waters to swim in, fully immersed into the Word of God and the Spirit of God of learning the Bible. I told you, Proverbs 25.5, is cold water to a thirsty soul. School is good news from a far country. Now, I... Bible says... I've been in a ministry long enough now to, uh, and been alive on planet Earth long enough now. I'm 63. I've been around long enough now to see something come full circle. I think the problem with some of you young folks and, and, and that are young, and it's not a problem, but it's just the way it is. You know, the Bible says the glory of a young man is his strength, uh, and the beauty of an old man is his gray head. And you see, when you're right now and you're young, the glory you have is your strength. You can run all day, play all day, go all night and do all you want to do, and, and you got the strength to do it. But when you get old in your life, you can't do that anymore. And where your glory is what you can do, the glory of a gray head is what the guy has learned. Wisdom. Wisdom is something that comes with time. You know what brings wisdom in your life? Now, I know we taught it in the Word of God, but it isn't just getting the Word of God in your life, turning it right side up. It's, it's, it's coming to the place where you not only get wisdom, but you watch the things in life with wisdom. It's not that you just get wisdom and apply wisdom to your life. It's that you watch everything in life, and what wisdom will do you will show you things that come full circle. And when things come full circle, you'll always see the end result. And then you have the ability to judge, was the end result worth the whole trip? It's like taking a long drive to a small, very small house. It's a thing where you learn to live and while to see some things come full circle. You see what works, and you see what doesn't work. You know, I've watched many people in their lives, Christian people, <clears throat> come to a complete standstill. I mean, they, they lose their marriage, they lose all their kids, they, they lose everything that God had for them, and now they're, they're 40, 50, 60 years old, you know, and, and uh, they're just an empty shell. Oh, they still go through the motions many times. I've seen people, I've seen, listen, I've seen people make every mistake in life that they could make. I've seen parents make every mistake in life they could make. I've made my own mistakes in life, brother. I mean, I'm right up there with the top of them. But I'll tell you something, I've always tried to learn from my mistakes, and I've always tried to not keep repeating the same mistakes twice. That's the key. And yet, with having said all of that, uh, I, I've seen God's people go through some, some great trials. I've seen God's people lose just about everything they could ever have in life. I've seen them go through some of the roughest, toughest times in their life. And yet, I've watched those same people take those bad circumstances and turn it around and get the victory in it. Now, what's the key to that? What's the key to that? And, and I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what you struggle with. I don't know what your deep problems are or your shallow problems or your mid-problems. You may have a midlife crisis or you may have a young life uh, crisis or a really old crisis. I don't know. But I do know this. There's, no matter what your issue is, there's always a way out. No matter what your problem is, no matter what you face, you may think it's unfixable. You may think it's irreversible. But I'm telling you, as far as the Word of God in God, it never is. 
I've seen people many times, God orchestrate their lives to bring them right to a, this church where they could hear the word of God and get the help they needed. You know why? Because God saw you in your predicament. God saw you in your struggle. And God loves you in spite of your struggles. And he wants to give you a way out. Praise the Lord for that. Amen. Praise the Lord for that. Amen. And here's the key. <clears throat> you made your mistakes in life. But through those mistakes, you allowed God to humble you with those mistakes. You didn't make excuses, blame it on somebody else. You didn't blame it on the circumstances. You took full responsibility for it. You didn't blame it on something or somebody else. You took it, and you turned it around, and you fixed it. Most, most husbands or wives that have very seriously bad marriages, they struggle a lot. And some of them never get their marriages fixed. Some of them never get their marriages together. <clears throat> and the reason why they won't is because one or the other, in every case I've ever dealt with, both of them will simply not humble themselves. They'll not humble themselves to the other person. They'll not come down off their high horse and humble themselves to the, their spouse. When you're willing to do that, then you can learn from your mistakes you have now a common ground to work through those things. I, I've seen parents completely lose their children, have no, 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 no influence in their kids at all. The kids are 30, 40, 50 and won't have anything to do with them, won't listen to anything they got to say. They've lost completely everything they got. And I guarantee you, in almost every case, the reason why that mom and dad have lost any kind of influence on those kids is because mom and dad, have, when they started to see the problems in the kids a long time ago, Instead of blaming it on everybody else, well, it's so-and-so who came to that church and he ruined my boy, or it's this over here, and they won't take responsibility to know. It's none of that. It's you. And you will not, listen, you will not humble yourself in front of your children. You know, that's a hard thing to do. You know, there's been times in my life when I had to sit down with my girls and I had to say, Dad was wrong. I wanted to say Dad was almost wrong. Kind of wrong, wrong for just a short period of time. <clears throat> you got to be able to, if you want to reach your kids, parents don't ever get to the place that you can't humble yourself before your kids. I, I've dealt with parents and kids all the time, years of, of, of rebellious kids that want nothing to do with their parents. Or if they want, they want their parents when well, no, they need them. Or, but I found it almost in every case when I have talked to them, and I talked to them many, many, many times, probably a thousand plus times over the years. The bottom line is that they don't respect their parents. They have no respect for it. You know why? Because their parents always pretended that everything was right when they were spiritual, when the kids were smart enough to figure out it wasn't. They saw the bad business deals. They saw this or they saw that. They saw what went on with the bickering and the gossip. And then, and, then, and then when they get into trouble, mom and dad want to drop the righteous hammer. They see how foolish that is. And they don't respect you. And they go through life, and you wonder why you can't deal with them. You have to get somebody else in to work with them. You wonder why you can't handle the problem. They won't listen to you. They, won't, they don't respect you. And the only way to reach your kids when your kids become unreachable is to humble yourself, take the responsibility, and try to work it from that angle. I'm going to tell you something. 
Being humbled by God is the greatest single thing you always want to allow God to do in your life. Don't ever get to the place where you get so proud you can't. Humble yourself in everything that you do before the Lord. You're going to make your mistakes. We all are. Some some of them are going to be worse than others. Some of them are going to be right down ridiculously stupid mistakes. But the road and the key to turning your life around is letting God, through those mistakes, humble you. Humble you. And then you dig a well. You get a good supply of water, and you keep that water moving. And you and your family and your life and walk with God will never become stagnant. It's the key. It's so simple. Now look at verse 17. Let them be only thine own and not strangers with thee. Now, I've been kind of just laying some stuff out here and kind of preaching a little bit and giving a little bit of insight. But I want you to listen to me now. Let thine... Let them be only thine own and not strangers with thee. Now, folks, there must come a time in your life when you have some things with God that nobody else knows about. You have some things with God that your wife doesn't know about, your husband doesn't know about, you don't share with your kids, your friends, you don't share them with nobody. They're the secret things that God and your walk with him and that intimate relationship that he gives you. And he doesn't give them to you so you can give them to somebody else. He gives them to you because he loves you. He gives them to you because he wants that relationship. And as anybody who loves somebody wants to give them special things that is just for them, boy, it's God that has some special things that he wants to give me and you. Things that God, through life, will give you through the circumstances, good and bad that you go through, that he'll give you. Things that he'll show you through his word when you labor to study it. Things that he'll give you through the situations of life that he wants you to have. Some things that he has brought you through and done for you or showed you that are just yours and yours alone. The secret things of God. A while back, <clears throat> I see it all the time. <clears throat> I'm thinking of one situation in particular. It's been a while back. <clears throat> I don't get on Facebook. <clears throat> I don't even know how to. And I don't have a Facebook account, so <clears throat> I don't I care about it. But every once in a while, you guys will send me something <clears throat> and, 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 you know, for a purpose. And somebody sent me this uh, a, a thing on Facebook where <clears throat> a couple... <clears throat> <clears throat> Uh, you had to know this couple. But they always were whining about what they didn't have. And 99% of their problem is because of their own self. And, uh, and so she would get on Facebook and she'd start talking about all their woes. She'd list out everything that they needed. All the things that went wrong. The this broke. The dishwasher broke. The dog died. The canary sick. Everything that, that they laid out. And instinctively... Some Christian, well-meaning but stupid, well-meaning Christian would read that and then get their need, send them what they needed, get them what they needed, and then the next week to be passed it on Facebook, oh, look what God did. 
Look how God came through. Listen, sister, that's not God, that's you. You want to know when God's in it? Do you want to know when God's really in it? When you have a need in your life that's a desperate need and you tell nobody. You don't post it on my face, my face, in your face, or any space. You don't call anybody and tell them. You just take it to God and you lay it out to Him. When you don't tell anybody and you just take it to Him and you've got the kind of relationship that God comes through for you, then you can say what God done for you. You know what that's called? That's a foreign thing today. It's called George Mueller Christianity. You know who George Mueller was? He was a German back in the 1800s. And he had a burden for kids that were homeless. And he wound up building over 21 orphanages. 21 orphanages. He fed 4,000 kids three times a day. In the 1860s and the 70s, he prayed in, in the 1870s, $10.5 million. He never made one phone call, never put an ad in the paper. He never asked one person for money. You say, how did he pray in that? He prayed, he, pray, he read through the Bible 200 times. Half of that on his knees. He never told one person what he needed. He never told one person what his needs. He realized that, brother, he had something going on with God. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't tell people what your needs are. I'm not suggesting that at all. Don't take it out of the context. I'm just saying, God wants to have some things with just you. He has some things he wants to give you. And you don't share them with everybody. You don't share them with everybody. Verse 18 says, let thy fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. Now, doctrinally, going back to Israel, we see that God in the Old Testament and all that he did for the nation of Israel. We now know from a couple of studies ago that Israel is is likened to God's wife, how he took care of her. And we saw how that he took care of her like a husband, a good husband should. We will look at it through the formulation, the calling out, the establishment, the demise, the captivity, and the restoration of Israel. And everything God dealing with Israel uh, as, a, as, a, as a tender plant, the Bible says. He, he loved her. He protected her. He gave her the best. He took everything in this world <clears throat> that everybody else would want and die for, and he gave it to Israel, his loving little wife. The blessing that God put in her life to make her fountain blessed. Now, let's talk about it for you and for me. For you and for me, it starts the day we got saved. It starts the day that you recognize that you're a sinner and your life is a mess because of the fact you've been trying to do it on your own for so long. It starts the day that you decide you're going to turn it all over to God and you're going you're to go on a new path in life. And uh, then you get saved and you get going for God. And you know what? about 20, 30 years later down the line someplace, you just kind of stop for a moment and you look back in your life, that full circle thing, and you begin to see how the hand of God was in your life, all your life. How God was there and met every need that you had. You see, when we're in the busyness of life with all the problems we have right now, we don't always see it. The older you get, the more you get into the Word of God, the deeper you dig that well, the more you look back at a point in your life and you see God's loving hand in your life. Where we were and where God has brought us. 
all that he has given us, all that he has done for us, my, my, what a humbling experience that is by itself. How God has molded and structured our lives. Jeremiah chapter 18, a great story of going down to the potter's house. It likens to a piece of lump of clay being put on a potter's wheel. And that that potter fashioning it with his hands and making it. And we know from the New Testament that that potter is God. And the picture of that clay is human beings like you and me. God wants to put you on the potter's wheel. He wants to squeeze you. He wants to groove you. He wants to fashion you. And he wants to come forth a vessel fit for the master's use. All your life it's been God orchestrating. You know what? And some of you have had some really tough times in life. And that's just as much of an orchestration of God because God was bringing you through the things in your life to show you what you need were to bring you where you needed to be to hear what you needed to hear. Oh, it's, it's incredible what God has done in our lives. How God has molded and structured our path of life. How the people he's put in your life and my life to teach you, to instruct you, to love you when you were hurting, to rejoice with you when you had the victory. People that most of us go through life and never one time think or thank them for one thing they've done or would never think of doing what somebody has done for you that you would do it for somebody else. Listen, not a day goes by in my life that I don't think of the four main men that God put in my life to help me get where I'm at today, if I'm anywhere. And there have been a lot of people in my life that have been there for me along the way. I'm not saying that, but I want you to tell you, God used my life for where he wanted me to do and where he wanted me to go. God gave me four men in my life who, who set my course, who molded and, and made me in every aspect that I needed to be by God's design. They were my examples. They were also my examples. And believe me, today, I'm just simply, uh, I'm just, I'm simply doing what these men have taught me how to do. Two of these men are dead and two are still alive. Some taught me how to love the Bible. Some taught me and challenged me how to know the Bible. Some taught me what not to do with the Bible. But I've never not been aware that a loving God all through my life has put people in my life to mold me and get me where he wants me to be. To this day, every time I see the two that are still alive, the first thing that I do is go up and put my arms around them and thank them for the investment that they made in their lives. They blow it off and think it was no big deal. But to me, it's everything. Because to me, them, I was just one of maybe a hundred, thousand of men that their lives have touched. But to me, looking back, coming full circle, it was God putting them in my life at a time that I needed what they had for me. And I will never forget that. I will never lose sight of that. I will never not be thankful for the things that God has put in my life and the things that God has done in my life. I have another principle I follow. It is don't focus on what you don't have. Always focus on what you do have. Look and see in what God has done for you. I'm telling you. One of the greatest messages that I, I, I've ever heard, and I preach it, and one of the greatest messages I ever heard to me, and I think it's the greatest message that I ever preached to me, because I don't just preach to you. I preach to myself while I'm preaching to you. So you may not like a sermon, but I may preach it to me because I think I need it. This is the greatest sermon I ever preach. I don't care what you think because this is the greatest sermon I ever preached to me. And it's found in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 21, and it goes along with never forgetting and understanding where God has brought you from. 
And it's found in 2 Timothy 4.21 where Paul tells young Timothy, he says, do thy diligence to come before winter. I heard that message way, 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 way back a long time ago. And it rocked my world. It was, the, it was, it was something that just put me off my feet. I watched that old boy come down and lay that thing out and he talked about wintertime in our lives. He talked about it, how Paul had some needs and he asked Timothy to get there before winter. And he turned it around and he said, you know what? There's a wintertime coming in everybody's life. Everybody's going to go through the wintertime. And when you get to the wintertime, you can't do things like you do in the summertime. And he laid out the four seasons of life, our springtime when we're young, our summer when we have our strength, our fall when we get a little older, and then wintertime comes and somebody else has to do it for you. And he says, you know what? Paul said to Timothy, do thy diligence to come before winter. And then he said this, you know what? There's some things that you better do before wintertime gets here. He said, there's some things that you as God's people better do for God before wintertime comes and you can't do it. He goes on and he said, I'll tell you something else. There's some people you better thank before wintertime comes and you can't thank them anymore. He said, you know what else? There's some people you better tell you love before wintertime here. You can't tell them anymore. Boy, he went down through that things and I'll tell you, man, I looked at my life and down through there and I thought, boy, that's exactly right. The things that God has done for me in my life, the people that I need to thank, the people that we need to, we need to, and he said, you know what? There's some people you need to forgive before wintertime comes. Boy, he laid the whole thing out. Because you see, there's coming a time in all of our lives when you'll stand at that graveside, you'll stand at that tombstone, and it'll be some friend or your mom or your dad, and you'll stand there and you'll say, Daddy, I'm sorry. Daddy, I love you. Daddy, Mommy, I'm sorry, I love you. You never said it while they were alive. You never told them you loved them when they were alive. You never said, Daddy, I'm sorry I did this. You never told them that. So you stand there with tears running down your face and you say, Daddy, I'm sorry. Mommy, I'm sorry. Too late. Wintertime. Wintertime. I told you before a long time ago the story of the old farmer. He was out there in Pennsylvania someplace back in the early 1900s. And he didn't have much, and they had to scrape for everything they got, and crops failed all the time, you know, and they, they didn't have hardly anything at all. And they, him and his wife one day went into the, went into the uh, town to get some supplies, and he's getting the stuff that he needs, and he was a penny pincher, man. He only bought what he needed, and he's buying the exact stuff that he needed to keep that farm, and he's looking for his wife, and she's over there in the other section, and she's looking at the, the lace, uh, calico lace, you know, on big rolls, and she's looking at it and holding it and fingering it, and, and uh, she looks at him, and he, she, says, she says, Honey, you think maybe I could just get enough of this to buy a new, make a new dress? I'll make it myself. He says, Absolutely not, women. We don't have money for that. We got to get back there. And she just put it back down and got with him. They got their stuff and supplies and loaded and went off they went. About four or five months later, his wife got sick. A month after that, she really got sick. And about a month after that, she died. One night, the the friends hadn't seen the old farmer for a while. And they thought they better go and check on him. So they got their old buggy and they started to ride down there. It was a thunderstorm. And they went by the house and he wasn't there. The lights were all out. And he drove down the, he drove, they drove on down the road and they saw a light in the cemetery. And as they pulled into the cemetery, rain coming down, lightning flashing, worst storm you ever saw. They walked in there and there was that tombstone of that wife with yards and yards and yards of gingham lace. And that man down on his knees just weeping like his heart was coming out of his mouth. Too late! Winter time. 
Listen, there's some things you better do before wintertime gets here. There's some people you better thank before wintertime gets here. There's some things you better realize that God put in your life to keep your fountain flowing before wintertime gets here. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Listen, your fountain is blessed because somebody else paid the price for you to have that water and love that book. Someone that discipled you, someone that worked with you, somebody that took uh, you from where you were and the troubles you had and brought you where you're at today. Someone that took the time to teach you the Bible. And you know what? Some of God's people wouldn't lift a finger today to do what somebody else did for them. You know why? Wintertime's coming. Rejoice with the wife of thy youth. Your first love, the word of God. And never forgetting that the only reason you got it is because somebody else paid the price for you to have it. The only reason you have what you have today because somebody in this church discipled you. Somebody in this church showed you where the word of God was. Somebody in this church that didn't maybe feel good or had their own problems, put that aside and dealt with your problems. Somebody that was struggling with their own kids or this or that. But put that all aside because their, your need was greater than their need. And that's the place you've got to get to in your Christian life. When you simply realize and understand whatever problems you have, there's always somebody that's got a greater need than we've got. Wintertime. Wintertime. Humbling yourself. Humbling yourself before the Lord. Now verse 19 says, let her be as a loving hind. And a pleasant row. Now you want to line this up to Song of Solomon chapter 2. And we won't take the time to do it today, but you can see a minute the connection there to the rapture of the church and the, and the, and the looking forward to my bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, as, as a hind in a row skipping along the mountains. And then it says, And be thou ravished always with her love. And the key word there is always. Ravish is the word we get our word rapture from. And, uh, you know, I've noticed that in life, and this is generally true, men love war stories and women love love stories. That's just the way it works. And nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that because God fixed it so the men could have their story and the women could have theirs because the greatest love story ever told and the greatest war story ever told was about the war in heaven and the devil fighting over your soul. The love story side of it is the fact that God loved you so much that he came down and died on Calvary's cross. He paid your price. The war story side of it that there was a war in heaven. And just as God wanted to take you to heaven, the devil wanted to take you to hell. And whether you don't know it or not, you're oblivious to it, you never heard about it before, it doesn't matter. There was a gigantic war up in heaven and your souls and my souls held in the balance. And the greatest love story that was ever told is a story that God loved me to come down and fight the battle and win the war that I might be able to go to heaven. Yes. And he just didn't win the battle. He won the war. He won the war. And you can claim that. He won the war. It was by dying for me, dying for you, because he loved me that much. He paid my price. He got the keys to death and hell. And then there came a day in my life when he walked out of that tomb. The old devil thought for sure they'd never get him out. 
Old story goes down there that when Christ died and went down into that death down there, that there's a death angel over that pit down there that keeps him in, and no one had ever gotten out. And the Lord had to go the same way that all men had to go, and his soul down there in death. The devil comes down and he says to the keeper of death, he says, now look, you've got to keep him in here. He says, don't you let him out. Death said, you know what? In 4,000 years of history, I've never lost a one of them. He ain't going anywhere. Devil said, you make sure. Second day, the devil comes back and he says, death. Death said, I'm here. You still got him? I got him. Don't you let him out. He ain't going nowhere. I got him. Okay. Third day, come back around. Death. Hey, death. Hey, death. What? You still got him? Mm-mm, there's something gone wrong down here. You know what went wrong? He got out. Up from the graves he arose with a mighty triumph over the foes. And he rolled that rock away. And now the water of life and the well of Jacob's well is for everybody. And he wants it to be a well in your life, going into a fountain in your life, springing into your children. Go into the streets of Kansas City like we're doing this afternoon. What a great example for your kids. Passing out a bottle of cold water to thirsty people and then in your devotions tonight saying, you know what we did today physically? That's what we want to do as a family spiritually. Oh, my dear friend. Then he saved me by his blood. He took me unto himself. He became one with me and I became one with him. And the great love story of my life began to unfold. The great war story of my life began to make sense to me. Now, you know, whether it's a war story or a love story, we always like happy endings. I mean, you can get on the news and some kid, some school bus got stuck on a railroad truck and a train came by and you hold your breath, you scream and you yell and you're all nervous and then you find out that nobody was really seriously hurt. That's a good ending. I read a story a couple of weeks ago, a month ago, where a girl jumped out of an airplane, a parachute, parachute failed, Roman candle. She came down 1,400 feet, hit the ground. What a tragedy. She's okay. That's some woman. Do not marry that woman. Do not marry that woman. That woman will beat you senseless. You'll try to shoot her, poison her, kill her, run her over the truck, and she will survive. People just love stories with a happy ending, don't they? Let me tell you something. He found me when I was worthless. He found you when the world had spit all over you and trampled you and wanted nothing to do with you. He found you in your life when everybody on this planet only wanted something from you. He found you in your booze and your drugs and in your life and what you think is such a terrible thing. He looks at it as something, you know what? That's just the way it is, this old world. And then he said, you know what? Drink of the water that I've got for you. Put away all the other stuff you've been drinking. Drink of the water of life that'll spring into wells of everlasting life. And it'll be the only water you ever drink 
that'll fix the quench of the thirst of your hungry soul. And I did it. You did it. And I'm telling you, that life's not been problem-free, and nor will yours, and nor will it ever be. But bless God, the war has been won. And like every story with every happy ending, one day of my Lord's coming back, we studied this Thursday night, didn't we, in the church militant and the church triumphant. You should understand it now if you bothered to come. Now we know and now we understand that that great love story was ever told and the greatest war story ever told has a happy ending. And when he comes back and takes you and me unto him physically and we get that glorified body, like every story, love story you ever heard, we'll live happily ever after. All to the glory of God. You're a fountain, folks. Dig that well deep. Let that water of life get into your world and change everything about you and help you become what you need to be. Every head bowed and every eye closed.